Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering every single horror movie franchise, one movie in one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing today? Doing pretty good. I mean, this is definitely going to be the low point of our Joyride series, but you know what? I'm all about optimism. Let's do it. You know, it's definitely... Um, I watched this yesterday for a first time watch for me and I'm like, Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I, you know, listeners who like have seen me post notes know that I tend to like usually take a bunch of notes of the movies we do depending on the quality of the title. And I think the extent of my notes for this one was what is third wave Ebo punk consist of. <laughs> so I think that is definitely something that we're going to have to dive into when we discuss this movie, exactly what that means to be a third wave emo punk. Um, but yep, the movie today is 2008's direct-to-video uh, Joyride 2, Dead Ahead, the continuing saga of Rusty Nails. <laughs> My lord. Right? <laughs> oh, All right, God. let's do it. Let's do it. So... Usually we have a guest on that will come and tell us about why they chose this movie and what it meant to them as a viewer and why it's like means so much to them as a horror title. But again, this is Joyride 2, so the cupboard is bare today as far as <laughs> as far as guests go. Um, so Jerry, what is Joyride 2 about? Oh boy. Well, Joyride 2, it's obviously a sequel to Joyride, which was written by J.J. Abrams. And uh, listeners, this has nothing to do with J.J. Abrams. Yeah, Clay Tarver, J.J. Abrams. Uh, uh, but just like Joyride 3, the funniest thing about this movie is seeing uh, create characters created by J.J. Abrams and Clay Tarver in the credits. <laughs> yeah, they had nothing to do with this. Uh, the, the movie basically... Uh, yeah, it follows Rusty Nelf, the uh, villain from the first film, uh, a mean, vengeful truck driver. This one, it's less about getting revenge at people that did him wrong more than just torturing people. I mean, I, the people in this film, they do – I mean, they flip them off, but, I mean, that's not a reason to cut their fingers off. Uh, basically, it's about a couple that are going to get married. They're going to Vegas, uh, Melissa and Bobby. And – Writing with them is Melissa's sister, Kayla. And also, they happen to go out of their way to pick up Kayla's online boyfriend, who I think his name was Nick. It's Nick, and they met on MySpace. MySpace, guys. And I want to know what his profile song was. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they pick well, him it up. it to be a third wave emo punk song. Oh, oh lord. That term. Uh, <laughs> God, this episode's going to be fun. So anyways... Their car breaks down on the drive, and, you know, they, they walk around and they find a house that looks like no one lives there. But in the garage, there happens to be a really nice Chevelle with a full tank of gas. So what do they do? They steal the car. I can't even talk. My voice is cracking talking about this movie. They steal the car and leave a note. <laughs> and, you know, it just happens to be Rusty Nail's car who they also flipped off trying to prove a point earlier in the film. So Rusty gets revenge, kind of a rehash of the first film, but a little more gruesome. And uh, yeah, that that's, that's what, that's what this movie is. Yeah. So that's pretty <laughs> much it. That is pretty much it in a nutshell. I actually did a quick look up on uh, like, what the hell is like third wave? Cause again, this is stuck in my craw at this point. Because listeners who know me know that, like, I'm nothing if not, like, a child of, like, late 80s, early 90s to, like, the late 90s punk rock. And I've never heard the phrase, like, third wave Evo before. So I found a Reddit thread, and it was kind of detailing, like, what the four waves of emo are. Oh, and this Lord. is what it came up with. And I agree with some of it. So basically, you have your first wave, which would be an offshoot of, like, the D.C., uh, Washington, D.C., hardcore punk scene of the early 80s. This is when you had bands like Guy Piccadillo's Rites of Spring, uh, Ian MacKay's band after um, Minor Threat, which was called Embrace. You also had um, Dag Nasty, which I think is one of the... Yes. You know, is in... Sadly, like, Dave Smalley has kind of become 
a uh, right-wing conservative punk, which is, to me, those things are oxymoronic, if not just plain moronic. Uh, but Dag Nasty's fucking wig out at Denko's is a classic emo punk record. I recommend that to anybody. Dude, can I say, man? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh. Can I say? It's so good. Um, they actually, the one where they do where, like, I think the second singer, I think it's a Sean Springs is the second singer. Yeah, I think so, too. Of, um, of and he actually does all the Dave Smalley songs, and they're actually better. Um, and you had Brit, um, Brian Baker, who would go on to play with Bad Religion. Uh, he was the guitarist of Minor Threat. He also is involved in that band. So if you have not listened to Dag Nasty, by all means, go ahead and look them up. And also, Rites of Spring, man. I, um, Rites of Spring is another one of those bands that just gets me fucking jazzed up every time I... I listen to them. So that would be your first wave of emo. I'm going to call a little malarkey on what they're calling the second wave here because they're saying it's like Midwestern emo. So that's no. like Sunny Day mm. Real Estate, Captain Jazz, Mineral, <laughs> Promise Ring, um, Still Life would have been in there, Sense Field would have been yeah. in there. Um, I don't know. I definitely think they're part of the emo scene, but I think that kind of overlaps. Like the th- they're saying the third wave is like the pop punk emo bands of the early to late nineties. So that's when you have bands like Jawbreaker, Saves the Day, um, Garden Variety out of New Jersey would have definitely fallen into that. Lifetime. Lifetime would have definitely fallen into that. As a matter of fact, like two things about lifetime number one when their um record i think it was like jersey turnpike when that record came out i remember listening to that driving down to seeing my girlfriend at the time who i hadn't seen in a few weeks and thinking like this would be an amazing record to listen to after you get dumped and sure enough like when i went down there she broke up with me that night and Sure enough, like that's what I listened to the whole way back at the top of my and yelling along to it at the top of my lungs. So, and then also, like when I first time I saw Saves the Day play Boston, I brought like a sign that I held up to taunt them that said Jersey second best dancers. (laughs) Jesus, genius, genius. Kids were so fucking mad at me. Like, how dare you insult this? You know, although the first two Save the Day records absolutely rip. So, look, you know, I'm not saying, you know, they're not great records, but let's face it, they kind of rip off Lifetime. Oh, yeah. I mean, they even had, like, some members of them. Like, do you remember the Strider? Uh, I know the band name, but I have not super. They released, they, they were like made up of members of, I think, Lifetime and Saves the Day. And they got yep. sued. They got sued, I think, by Tolkien's family or something like that. Or really? one of those, one of the, the families of, what? okay, the Striders from Lord of the Rings, right? Or is that a different series? It must be. It has to be. One of those, one of those series, those fantasy, because I've, I've never been into that stuff, so I'm not really familiar with it. The family sued them, so they had to change their name after one album. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, they were, oh God, that whole era, you know, like. Well, I would put bands like Jimmy Eat World would probably go into that. Especially category. the first two albums, man. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, oh God, I'm just, now I'm drawing a blank. Oh, Game Face, which I think maybe was more pop punk overall. Um, but that would have been the, like, I, to me, that was like peak emo era overall. Where, yeah. Yeah. You had a pretty good crossover between what pop punk and emo was. Oh, and Texas is the reason. Like, oh to my me, God. Right. Texas is the reason is that quintessential kind of like early nineties emo band that was just about to cross over to the mainstream overall and kind of knocked on that door, but didn't quite get over the hump. Um, simply because they started to hate one another by the time they were finished touring. So well, that and like what happened, and this really shows how little we want to talk about Joy Ray too. Is that like you had all these great bands that were kind of like labeled that, and I'm not dissing Chris Caraba at all, mm-hmm. but when Chris Caraba came onto the scene with Vacant Andes, and then Further Seems Forever, and then he left to start Dashboard Confessional by, mm-hmm. like by himself. The shift was all those bands that were labeled emo. Suddenly, emo became like 
dudes with swoopy hair and acoustic yes. guitar playing at hardcore shows, like singing about every single girl that dumped them. Yes. And so it became such a cliche, you know, it's like, hey, you have bleached, you have bleached bangs, you wear eyeliner and you have an acoustic guitar, you're emo. And it's become almost like a verb at this point. Like my kids right. call, my kids call each other that. But I remember like the emo diaries. Remember that, that compilation? Yes. Oh mm-hmm. my God. All of that stuff. Like I, Dash, Dashboard oh, Confessional had that song at the end of like Spider-Man 2, that song Vindicated. Yeah. And that to me is what third wave emo, emo is. It's like the stuff you would hear on like mainstream rock radio, like, um, what was Jared Leto's band? Like 30 Seconds Over Mars? Or 30 Seconds to Mars, yeah, yeah. 30 Seconds to Mars, which I've, you know, um, Dashboard Confessional, 30 Seconds to Mars, bands like Brand New. Um, those are the bands to me that like make up. And that was the kind of like emo that I didn't listen to at all. I liked those bands that kind of like, like towed the line between mm-hmm. that era that we liked and the mm-hmm. era that you're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. like taking back Sunday was kind of like the that era, but they they had like that sensibility that kind of felt like Lifetime and stuff. So it was easier mm-hmm. for me to get on board with like bands like that. I think. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever heard a Taking Back Sunday song. Oh man, listen to that first album. You'll I, I think you'll love I it. Ever have I, I'll maybe give that a listen to. Um, I remember like Matt Donato one night, like there was like a um, Zoom thing that I jumped on. And he w- it was like a drinking game where you were doing, he was playing, he's like, oh, I made an emo playlist. And every time the song, <laughs> and the, none of the songs are emo. Like, this is not emo. This is definitely, and you're I like, was like getting more and more offended as the call. Yeah, like, this is Jimmy World's song from last year. <laughs> but it wasn't even that. It was like butt rock. It was totally like, it was like total like new metal. And I'm just like, this is not what I would call like emo in any way, shape or form. I think by that point, by like the mid to late two thousands, I was more like listening to things like coming out of New York and New Jersey, like get bent. Like to me, get bent is one of the great unknown bands of that era where they were just like super fast, high energy. Like when I got to see them play at a basement in Alston, like we completely like trash the basement. Um, just like moving around to them. Um, Iron Sheik, um, I think, would fall under that category. Um, bands like Rum Springer would fall under that category. Um, the Ergs, you know, like pop punk, like the Ergs, which had a definite like 90s emo bent to it. That's mm-hmm. kind of more the direction I went in. And then I'm pretty sure if like a song was released after 2013, I probably have not heard it. I have like my own little bubble. Like the a small brown bike, like late '90s to mid 2000s, yeah, is to me like an emo band. Early against me is like a fucking great emo band. Did you ever get into um, Bayside? No, I've never heard Bayside. Oh man, it's like just straight up. Oh god, I, I especially the first couple albums. Like anytime we talk about music, I'll probably end up saying that first couple albums. Mm-hmm. But uh, oh man, it's it's almost like Morrissey fronted a pop punk band. Ooh. Like, oh, no, it is. Oh, they're so good. They're, they were on Victory for the longest time, and I think they're on a different label now. I opened up for them, Armor for Sleep and Fallout Boy in 2004, maybe 2005. Fallout was... Boy, that's another big fourth wave emo band or third wave emo band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're awful, but uh... <laughs> sorry, listeners. Right. <laughs> no, but like, I remember that show just watching Bayside. I think they're from Jersey or somewhere near that. And like, it was like seeing. A complete throwback to the music that I was like a teenager growing up just like skateboarding mm-hmm. to, you know? Like, God, that band is so good. I think for the record, if you guess an emo band is from New Jersey, you have about a 40% chance of being correct. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> right? I, I'm pretty sure that's how it works overall. I think that's pretty sure that's how it works. I want to be um, wrong. I want to be wrong one of these times, though. Be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're from Jersey. They're like, no, they're from Bakersfield. Yeah, nope, they're from Japan. Um, <laughs> so that, this is a long way of saying that like Nick and Joyride 2 definitely <laughs> embodies like that look, what I think of like Fallout Boy um, or Jared Leto's band. Like this kid looks like Jared Leto. He, he's got like the fake tattoos, the fake lip ring. Um, <laughs> you know, to me, he gets really offended when he's accused of being goth. 
Oh, um, Lord. I hated I mean, people like that growing up. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Absolutely despise people. And I still hate people like this. Um, but to me, what was interesting was like this was on the cusp of meeting people online was becoming more and more common, but it was still seen as pretty sketchy. Oh, totally. Um, I mean, I, I, I met my wife on Tinder. But, I mean, mm-hmm. in 2008, I would have, you know, never have done that. Right. Like, I met my wife through Craigslist. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's surprising. Let's put it this way. It's surprising the relationship has lasted 16 years based on where we met. Um, but the fact is, like, and I think for like at first we told people, oh, we met at a bar in Somerville because that's where our first date was but you know then after a while yeah we met online and then we tell people we met through craigslist isn't that funny because like my wife i used to be a manager at borders and my wife came in about six years before we met and i sold her a book once Mm -hmm. and that was so much easier to tell people than to say yeah i swiped right yeah i was you know i was you know i was looking for a booty call i swiped right and Mm -hmm. i got married but you (laughs) you know (laughs) <laughs> no we, we met at borders obviously no yeah yeah I, I feel you now it's almost like if you tell someone you met them in real life like it's almost un- it's almost like what you well number one you can't meet anyone at a bar right now because if you're going to a bar right now you are a terrible person because you're probably going to spread a very infectious disease that kills old people um so don't do that um but it's almost probably more common at this point to meet someone on Bumble or Tinder or whatever than it is like the old fashioned way. So, yeah. But then again, what do I know? I look like Kevin James. So, <laughs> you know, like that's about how hip I am. I don't know, man. Um, People are loving him and Becky. I still I need to see that. I rented the relic. Oh, man. Relic's great. So I was going to watch that yesterday, but I watched this movie instead. <laughs> Choices in life, right? I know. And then I watch it follows for our Patreon show. Which oh, yeah, yeah. Later on. So, um, all right. So what ha- else happens in Joyride 2? Yeah, I mean, like I said, uh, there's the couple that are they're getting married. They're going to Vegas to get married, uh, which is such a fun, cliche kind of storyline to mm-hmm. follow. And, you know, she takes her sister. Her sister meets up with, with uh, MySpace personified in Nick, uh, third wave emo lover. Uh, and, yeah, like... It's it's interesting because like the first film, you know, like Paul Walker and Steve Zahn, they get in over their head because they're trying to pull pranks. These people are just kind of like shitty people from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like like I'm sorry if I was in the middle of nowhere, I probably wouldn't steal a car. I'd tr- probably try to wait it out, especially right. if a car is like a nice car with a full tank of gas in the gas station. Somebody's gonna come home right. eventually. So it's like. Yep. This this one it's hard to get on board with like any of their plight because it's like guys you guys are making the worst decisions the entire movie. Yeah, it's this this movie like they find Rusty Nail's house and he's not home. So first they break into the house, which is uncool thing to do number one, and then they're ransacking his house, stealing his food, going through it, talking about how creepy it is, and they immediately jump to the conclusion. That, like, nobody lives there, nor have they lived there for years, despite the fact that, like, the electricity works. And they and ate the like food. food. And there's, like, food in the house. And that there's a well-preserved car in there that starts right up. Now, I didn't let my car run for, like, two weeks during this pandemic, and I needed to get a new battery. So, you know, why they thought it would be okay that, you know, it was, oh, the person who lives here is probably dead, so let's take their car and we'll just leave a note just in case they show up, and then we'll find a way to get it to them. That's not... I mean, it doesn't make you a terrible person. It does make you someone that's make some pretty shitty decisions. And I have to question whether or not, if you're you know capable of that kind of poor decision, how stable Bobby and Melissa's marriage would have been once they're actually married at that point. Oh, totally. I mean, that and, like, it's not just that decision that, like, makes me kind of just, like, scoff at at these characters. Like, later on in the movie, basically, Rusty kidnaps, uh, God, who was it? Bobby. He he kidnaps Bobby from a diner that they're visiting. And 
he basically puts him through the saw like game of hey do this or you know it, it, it's it's weird this film feels more like a saw movie than the first joyride to me well but, it definitely because by this point like it comes out the same year as saw five mm-hmm. so the blueprint is in place at this point and you're looking at how much money saw movies are making so you're definitely adding that element into this where it doesn't really Fit. Yeah, I mean, he to get them back, he asks uh, the Kayla character to basically cut off one of her fingers because she flipped him off. And this is where bad decision number two comes in for me. They they go to like a mortuary, and to get out of having to rectify for her bad decision, she cuts a finger from a dead body. <laughs> See, I thought that was a good choice. I think I would do that instead of cutting off my own finger. See, I'm just a sadist. I would have cut my finger off even you know, oh. had he not asked. But, like, no. he, he gets so pissed. It's funny. Rusty has such a bad temper in this movie, like, more than the first one. The first one was just like, hey, I'm embarrassed. I showed up at a motel with, a, you know, a bottle of, of wine. I felt incredibly embarrassed. I'm going to make you guys embarrassed and suffer. And suffer. This one, I, uh, I still think in the first movie, and I know I asked this last week, when Rusty Nail said apologize, if Steve Zahn said, hey man, we're sorry, we really shouldn't have fucked with you, it was a shitty decision on our part, we're just two stupid kids that were passing time, we didn't know that we were going to really hurt someone's feelings, I think that he would have left them alone. Do you? But like, he ripped out I, a dude's I, I jaw, really didn't he? But that dude with the jaw... Oh, that's true. such a belligerent You asshole. know what? No, honestly, now that you say that, I, I, I totally agree with you. I forgot that whole thing. Like, I wasn't sure. Right. Yeah, so that guy was such an ass where I don't feel any sympathy for the jawless dude. I don't... Yeah, no, I, I feel you now. And plus, like, this movie, it's hard to feel an ounce of sympathy for anybody. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's... I mean, skipping ahead... Uh, I do think that that's what makes Joyride 3 a lot more likable than this one, is that Joyride 3 from the beginning knows that their characters really aren't shit, so they have fun with those. This movie, like, it, it it's difficult to even have fun with it because it's just like, right. I can't stand these people. See, I didn't mind them, aside from Nick, and I think Nick was written as a complete jackass from start to finish, but I think that's the role that he's meant to play. You know, his girlfriend, Kayla, she's okay overall. You know, I mean, she's smitten by this new guy she met online, and she's probably paying him a little bit more attention than she should when compared to her sister and his her fiancé. But, you know, I think as the movie goes on, she definitely proves her loyalty lies with her sister and not this new guy. Mm-hmm. And Bobby is just kind of there. Like, he's actually embarrassed by nick at most points he tries to be the voice of reason most you know until he's actually kidnapped and then his job is to just basically be the victim he then on he goes through so much stuff in this movie for everybody else like it does like he gets his nipple branded <laughs> yes <laughs> like jesus man he gets like we'll definitely get to that soon oh that lord but can like, we talk about oh, the... Okay, you first. No, 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 no. I, I forgot what I was saying, so go for it. Can we talk about the truck stop scene? The the female hooker one, or...? Well, we could definitely do that one. The female hooker one is uh, something else, because you have to start a movie like that. That was, like, the most uncomfortable thing to watch, that whole... It just was, like, skeevy. And I think that set the tone, because we talked a lot about the first Joyride movie, how it's a fun entertaining b-movie the kind that you would see on you know cable television on a saturday afternoon like every weekend for a few years this announces intent in that like a um you know what they i guess what do they call them like not ring rats but they call them like truck rats or something Mm -hmm. something really grotesque and misogynistic basically yeah she gets in the truck she offers like and her rates seem pretty reasonable i mean like (laughs) 25 bucks or a hibber, um, 50 bucks, you know, for oral and 75 for the whole thing. Like, I don't know. That seems fairly. It's not outside bargain, you know, reason. Right? You know, so, but, you know, instead of taking her up on that, he um, is really gross to her. And when she tries to crawl out the window, he shuts the window on her and then drives her face first into another, the side of another truck. So 
that's the kind of movie you you know you're going to get into before the credits even roll. Yeah, I mean, the first film, it took a while to to let its viewer know what kind of movie they were watching. And it was more like this very suspense-driven story. This one, right from the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, he decapitated a prostitute, you know, and then mm-hmm. here we go, movie starting. Kind of like the third one, you know, they have meth heads fighting over crack or meth on top of a big rig before one of them gets pulled underneath. Like, uh, even by the second film like usually in a series it takes a few films for the formula to like deviate from what came before Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like you didn't get like a crazy way out there vibe from friday 13th till maybe part five joyride 2 from the beginning is nothing like joyride at all Mm -hmm. so it's it's really it i mean i find it interesting uh not so much in a good way but it it almost feels like a clean slate to start a series off with this one because Joyride Three, though I enjoy it a lot more than second one, is very much in tune with the second one more than the first. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's weird. So what you see, I'm looking at what movies came out for horror movies in 2008, and to me, this is like smack dab in the direct to video stage of horror, where because of the ubiquitousness of dvd players and dvd rentals um and netflix shipping discs to homes at the time this was an era where studios could crank out direct-to-video horror movies and clean up i think when we talked about and this will be a few years later but the lost boy sequel the tribe went direct right to video and it made millions upon millions of dollars. Like people really ate that up. So you could release a movie that had a little bit of like a name recognition behind it. Cause people probably rem- even if they hadn't seen Joyride, Oh yeah, I remember that it had the dude from the fast and furious in it and the dude from, you know, saving Silverman in it, you know, I'll, I'll check that movie out um, where you could release like a low budget thriller like this and probably make pretty good money. I don't know about you, but the version I rented on Amazon was pan and scan and not widescreen. Yeah, I yeah, I watched the same one, I think. I couldn't find out if the movie was like shot that way um, or if, um, which in 2008, that still seems like it would be a little bit surprising. Like even if you were going direct to video, it seems surprising to me that you wouldn't have shot it widescreen given that like things are moving towards DVD and HD TV, like to shoot it four by three seems like you were shooting it as like a, you know, eighties or nineties or early two thousands television. movie. See, that's the thing about this one that, that I, I, dude, I agree a hundred percent. The way it's shot feels like it would be a made for USA movie, but with gore, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like it, or a sci-fi channel movie. You know, like it, and it's, it just, yeah, yeah. It's surprisingly restrained until the third act. Like, I remember I made like a mental note for the first hour of the movie. I'm like, you know, considering that this is a straight to video release, I'm surprised that it's as bloodless as it is so far. Like even that first scene that we mentioned, you know, it cuts away before you see anything Mm -hmm. and you see like a little spatch of blood, um, you see a little spatch of blood on the side of the truck, and that's it. Um, one of the characters, like Bobby, gets his finger cut off, and you don't see that. You just see them cut away and him screaming. And then there is the scene outside, like a rest stop, where the bartender gets choked to death, and is is a homage to the first movie. Like his jaw gets ripped off. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's the only like up until the third act where it goes a little bit hog wild. That's really all the blood that you get, or all the gore, the up close gore you get. I think that's the moment where the movie shifts. You know, like mm-hmm. like yeah. I mean, you're right. That first hour, that first half, mm-hmm. it's pretty bloodless, and it's it's more in line with like tonally mm-hmm. to the first film. I think it's that moment with the jaw and the barman that like. After that, I mean, you get that, you get uh, Kayla 
basically getting backed up and rammed by the car. Mm-hmm. You know, you get you get Bobby tortured nonstop. I mean, like his kneecaps blown out, mm-hmm. his nipples branded. I mean, you get like yeah, well, definitely you get like bars to the head. Like it's such a mm-hmm. yeah, like the whole sh- like it shifts so dramatically. So here is what I just did a quick look at what horror movies are out in two thousand eight and. You know, we mentioned before, this would have been the year of Saw 5. So you're coming off an era where movies like Hostel, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, you are one year removed from Rob Zombie's first Halloween movie, which for what it's worth, as little as I like that movie, it was a massive success. Mm-hmm. And it set a blueprint for other movies to come. Um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake um, set, I think, a template for, you know, what you can, considering how the first Texas Chainsaw is all implied horror, and this one was very much like you could see it all happen on screen. Mm. And I think that's what you're getting. So for your bigger pictures, you have like The Strangers, you have Martyrs um, making inroads over here. Um, it's what extreme, like again, extreme French horror is on people's minds, but then you have a series of really smart direct to video movies that tend to be a little bit more thoughtful. Uh, and I think to be honest, a bit more enduring because of that. Um, in 2008, you have dead girl with kid blue himself, Noah Segan, um, which is like a very different take on zombie movies. You have Lake Mungo, which was part of the after dark, uh, do you remember the After Dark? Yeah, like dude. I, I, man, I used to watch every single one of those during like the one or two days that they would play in the theater. Yeah, you had this, this After Dark would they would do like eight movies a year, I think, and you would get them like a double feature at various movie theaters, and they would kind of rotate through. And I still think like Lake Mungo is the best of the bunch. Yeah, no, they had a lot of good ones in there. And they also mm-hmm. gave like really good filmmakers chances to kind of like get movies out there. Mm-hmm. Like I know Stephen C. Yeah. Miller did one of them. Adam Girosh did one mm-hmm. of them. You know, yep. you had a lot of like uh, Mike Mendez did, uh, was it Grave Dancers? Yes. God, yeah. I love that movie. Like, yeah, you had some real gems in there. Yeah. And then there was also not part of that series, but uh, 2008 is Pontypool. Um, with Stephen McCaddy, which is a great movie. I wonder if Brad McCarg has seen that. I think he (laughs) may have seen that movie. He got really mad at me once because I made a Pontypool joke, and he got really mad. He was like, I don't want to just be the guy that is known for... Pontypool in Dude. Session 9. Which I was about know? to say that. I was, I was about to say, he's not just known for Pontypool. There's Session 9. Yeah, no. so... But, but um, also, like, really quickly, I mean... But it's a great movie. Oh, they're like, both if great, champion, yeah. If you're going to champion two movies until your dying day, like, you cannot go wrong. I'm forever going to be the guy that said Leatherface was as good as the first Texas Chainsaw. On oh, a, my God. Or no, 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 not dude. as good, but the best sequel uh, on the Blu-ray cover. <laughs> So, hey, you know what, Brad? You can have Pawnee Pool in Session 9. Well, I think you can make a case that Leatherface is the uh, best I, 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 Wait, Leatherface I, from 1990 or Leatherface from <laughs> 2017? 2017, buddy. Oh, Jerry. I love that oh. movie. I love that movie unabashedly. Oh but, on like, a year before this movie came out even, like, 2008 had a good variety of, like, that kind of French extreme stuff and also the mo- mm-hmm. more thought-provoking stuff. And... I mean, you mentioned Dead Girl, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I, I did a really cool retrospective on that movie and talked to multiple uh, actors mm-hmm. from it for Delirium Magazine once. I love that movie. But even the year before, uh, it really showed how balls to the wall you could do with like straight to video or real independent horror. I mean, the year mm-hmm. before, 2007, we had Hatchet, which, I mean, that movie, you know, people love it or hate it, but I mean, it. it kind of brought forth a lot of that kind of movie and even Joe Lynch's film Wrong Turn 2 which was mm-hmm. I mean oh man like I love Wrong Turn 2 so much because it's it's it's, a fun it's like a modern day video nasty it's just a splatter film mm-hmm. that is so much fun and it kind of showed that you can put these movies on direct to video and not feel that kind of MPAA censorship over your back 
And I, I think yeah, there was an audience for them. There, there was totally. And I think that maybe Joyride Two, and especially Joyride Three, kind of tried to embrace that. But I think what makes Joyride Two suffer is that that first half is stronger than when the gore and the excessive just mm-hmm. stuff in your face happens the second act. So, Jerry, I have a question for you about 2008 movies right mm-hmm. now. What do movies like The Ruins, Martyrs, Lake Mungo, and Pawnee Pool all have in common? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, what they have in common is they are not part of a larger franchise. Do. Which means yeah. in our normal shows, they are not movies that we would normally cover. Mm-hmm. So how do we get around that? What do we get to do if we want to talk about <laughs> this guy? God, that was smooth. Oh. That was so smooth. Well, listeners, smooth. we love talking about those movies. Uh, you know, I complain about that to my wife so often. She'll be like, what? You have to talk about Joyride 2? I'm like, yeah, that's the format of the show. Don't you want to talk about that? I was like, yeah, but we can only do that if we get patrons, listeners. <laughs> we right. we love talking about these one-off movies. Uh, we did it with Christine. We've, uh, you know, I, I, I did an episode on Three from Hell with Justin Beam. Uh, you know, like, or the commentary ones that Mike did with his daughter. We love doing those. Uh, but the only way that we could kind of do those feasibly right now is if we have patrons that kind of, like, help us with that. Like, the show will always be free, but these bonus episodes, these one-offs, these commentaries, that kind of stuff, we want to do as many as we can. And we have a really fun one planned that we're going to, I think, pro- probably record next week. It's on It Follows yeah. with uh, Chris Dudley from Under Oath. Uh, he chose the movie. He was so excited to talk about that movie. Or, I don't I mean. I don't know, Twitter messages. I don't know if he was so excited, but he wrote that he wanted to talk about it. <laughs> uh, but yeah. He was reasonably excited. Reasonably, uh, which is great because I love that movie. But a big way that we can talk about movies like It Follows, movies like Pool, movies like, I, I don't know, like just good movies that we don't get the chance to really talk about because, you know, we say, hey, we're going to do Joyride. Then we cabin in, yeah. Cabin in the Woods, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, movies like oh, that. Oh, definitely. Is if we get patrons. And, uh, you know, we have a, a Patreon set up. Uh, you know, there's different tiers, different things. Uh, I think Mike could go into detail with that more. So we've, yeah, so we have made it very easy for you to become a patron of our show. Right now, if you go to patreon.com slash the pod and the pendulum, we have three different tiers set up. Now, all of our tiers will get you bonus shows and bonus content one of the things that drives me crazy is when i look at becoming like a patreon of a show that i like and it's not until you get to one of the more expensive tiers that you get anything extra at all um you get like if you it's like you get a thank you if you are like one of the lower contributors and look we understand money is very tight right now there are millions of people out of work and just the fact that you listen to our show, it means so much to us. And it has opened up avenues to me in terms of writing and doing stuff for other outlets and meeting people um, that I don't think I would have been able to do otherwise. So just you being a listener like means a ton to us. So if you're going to go that extra mile and give us like actual financial support, I think it's like incumbent on us at that point to give you guys bonus content. So starting at $2 a month, which we're calling the Michael, um, two bucks a month will get you a bonus show every single month on a movie that we normally would not cover under the show. It will also get you a bonus blog post every month. So for the month of July, the blog post is on why I really appreciate Malcolm McDowell's take on Dr. Loomis so much and how I think it really relates to the work that is done with children in psychotherapy and traumatic children or children that suffer trauma. And the bonus movie this month we're going to cover is uh, 2014's It Follows, which is such a rich thematic Mm -hmm. movie to jump right into. And it will not be a you know, 30-minute, 45-minute, one-hour-long episode, you will get the whole kit and caboodle. Like, you will get a regular-length 
episode where Jerry and I and sometimes guests really dive into these movies. And that is for $2 a month. We also give you access to our Slack channel where listeners can come talk about the movies we're watching, talk about episodes. If they want to have anything they're promoting, they can kind of talk about it there so we can give it a look uh, and just kind of interact with our listeners. It's a fun way to kind of keep in touch with people online in a private way so you're not like posting, hey, I really like this movie on Twitter and then having someone tell you why you're a piece of shit for doing it. So <laughs> as much as I love Twitter, like that does, that does happen. And I will remind people as an aside that it's okay not to be the turd in the punch bowl when it comes. That's to always it. my favorite thing. Like I'll post about how much I liked a movie and someone will like just randomly comment. I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Okay, great. Where do we go from there? <laughs> um, so, that is at $2 a month. Five bucks a month gets you the bonus show a few days earlier. It will also get you some swag. So I've had pins made. I'm going to get stickers made. There, you know, pins in the really nice pins you can attach to your laptop bag. Or, you know, if you want to be better than Nick in Joyride 2, maybe you pierce your lip with it as opposed to having fake I would do this. Um, Ted, that We're calling that tier the Jason. But if you want to be a hero, <laughs> if you want to be the Ripley... That's where you go to the $10 a month tier, the Ripley. Right now, that will net you um, the notes to our shows. So like, I have, have a folder that I've created in our uh, Google Drive that has all of my show notes in it. And I will share that folder with anybody that becomes a $10 or greater um, patron. In the long run, I would like to have some more swag up there, like a pot and pendulum coffee mug or t-shirt, something that we can do for our um, real hardcore listeners. Um, if I might create a thousand dollar tier, or if you become that, I would probably be at that $25 level, you know, Little spit, you know, little spit, little eye contact, um, little dirty talk. For a thousand bucks, if you're in the continental United States, we will come and perform at your children's birthday party or something. You know, that's tempting to do right. Uh, now. You know, you guys on social media, you guys read my my uh, my film Twitter cop joke, and it's bad. So there's there's a lot of stand up, uh, you know, coming at you for a thousand dollars. Right. So what does you know, aside, why, what do we use this money for? In all seriousness, like the money that we get from Patreon, right now it goes to the hosting platform for the show. So it pays for that like right up front, which is great. Uh, it goes to improving our equipment. So right now, like I have a new microphone that I've been able to use for the past few shows that I've noticed like a big difference in my own, you know, quality of like how it sounds working and getting jerry a better mic because we want to make this a great listening experience for you as well so it's going directly into upgrading um the show overall it goes into like the research that we do for the show so for example both jerry and i are rereading um tommy hudson's book uh on the nightmare and elm street series which is a just an amazing literary deep dive into what it took to create that first movie. And it's something that we're going to rely pretty heavily on when we get to the Elm Street series in a few weeks. It goes to buying like the Blu-ray box sets for the movie so we can get all the supplemental material. It goes so that I can, you know, do, uh, you know, go to my old universities like library and actually pay for a subscription there as an alumni so i can get some research articles as well so it basically what we want to do is bring you the best possible content when it comes to doing these shows every week like it can be you know we do a series like joyride because it doesn't take as much research to do it's just more fun to talk about oh totally and like that i think that's one of the things that I love the most about doing this show is that when we tackle series and franchises that we genuinely just love and that have rich mm-hmm. history, we kind of try to go all in. I mean, for our Alien series, I mean, we didn't just visit the box set for information. I bought four books just for that series. Right. You know, like uh, anything that we make from the, the, the Patreon, we'll go back into the show to make sure that you guys have the best show possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another 
pod, a show we really love. Um, when I mentioned how Prometheus was three hours, they asked, like, what do your listeners think of those shows? Like, do they listen? And from all the statistics I see, they tend to be our, like, the shows that go long tend to be our most listened to shows. And when you look at how long people listen to them, they pretty much get through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So we know that that's what our listeners like about our show. And my response to that question was also one of my stated goals of the pod and the pendulum is when we wrap up a series, like now that we've finished Alien, I want people to go back and listen to those eight episodes we did and say, you know what? I don't really need to listen to another podcast about the Alien series for a while. Like, I feel so well-schooled in that right now. And that's why we bring on the guests that we do, who know so much more than I do, um, and can really educate our guests, but still be really entertaining. When we are done the Nightmare on Elm Street series, I want people to go back and say, this was the definitive series of episodes covering Freddy Krueger in a Nightmare on Elm Street. Do we get there? I don't know. But, you know, hopefully the in the effort, it makes it worthwhile. All right. So I've <laughs> talked way too long about pitching Patreon. I thought we would leave it to three minutes, but I tend to ramble. So if you don't want me to ramble like this every week, listeners, Pay us. If, you're, if you're ponying up the dough, I'm not holding you hostage and you're not hitting the 30 second skip on your podcast button. So patreon.com, pod and the pendulum, please support us today, and thank you again for listening. Yes. Now back to Joyride 2. Okay. So with the... <laughs> I think we said everything we need to say about Joyride 2, and we'll be... No, I'm kidding. I, I think one of my favorite things about the first Joyride was how Rusty really tried to embarrass those two goofballs. Like, you know, having them get, like, you know, basically buck naked and, you know, go into the, the diner. And this one, one of my favorite scenes, just because it's it's such payback for them just being jerks to him. He basically makes Nick, you know, third wave emo lover himself, basically dress as a, 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 a female prostitute to go buy crystal meth. <laughs> yes. Like, it's so... It's yep. so ridiculous that you can't help but just kind of like laugh at the absurdity of that whole mm-hmm. sequence. Yeah, it was a bit transphobic, um, but I think that that would be a lot more common and less looked down upon in 2008, which is good to see that we've come a, hopefully a long way since then. Um, and, you know, Nick getting all and Nick kind of like was a very androgynous <laughs> character, so it didn't seem like it would be out of the realm that he would be into. See, if that happened to me, I would, dude, I would just embrace it. Like, you know what? Like, didn't look that bad in a dress. Like, it's, it's funny that like, that's supposed to be like a big insult in those, in that day and age. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's definitely, that was definitely odd. So the truck stop scene though. So the four of them, after they steal the car, they drive off to a truck stop. And like you said, Jerry, a truck blows by them and one of the characters like flips it off and they start, oh, I wrote this down. Uh, Nick yells, rage against the machine, motherfucker. <laughs> and I <laughs> lost it. Folks, it is worth it. It is worth a $4 rental just for the line delivery. And I'm like, oh my God, someone got paid to write that line. That is amazing um but they go into this truck stop and the three you know the fiance uh bobby his fiance and her sister they're all cool like melissa bobby and kayla just want to get their pancakes and not bother anyone and nick immediately starts loudly berating everybody in the truck stop now I want to point out that if you haven't seen this movie, uh, Nick, the character, is probably like 110 pounds soaking. Mm-hmm. And he is in this area with these giant burly dudes that give like zero fucks whatsoever. And he's like, you're all on crank. You're all a bunch of motherfuckers. You know, all you can do is get like skanky hookers. You know, fuck all of you. And Bobby is the one that gets kidnapped. So, you know, um, but it's like a really uncomfortable scene because you're seeing like 
Melissa and Bobby, like all they want to do is go on, you know, have their bachelor and bachelorette party, get married, start their life. And you have this like shitty fourth wheel that is just super antagonistic and aggro and just embodies the fucking worst in butt rock culture circa 2008. So that scene in particular, like to your point about having no likable characters, it wasn't that I didn't like Melissa, Bobby and Kayla, but Nick is so overwritten to, in terms of being unlikable to the point where you're right. The other three characters suffer. They do. Them. And I think in, in some films it works to have that kind of just one prickish character, you know, like to differentiate from the other ones. But in this movie, mm-hmm. they're just kind of it's it's kind of like guilty by association in some way. You know, like Nick is just so unlikable. And it's and I don't think it's the performance. Uh, you know, the actor that plays him. I mean, he's doing what he can with what he's given, but the the character he's doing what he's told exactly. To do in the script. Yeah, I don't think he's over. No, I think he's like he's you know the Kyle Schmidt who plays Nick in this is doing exactly what he's been written to do. So it's he's definitely not. In it's just the character's written so. <sighs> the character's written so much like everything that maybe like grown adults uh, like hated about their kids during the MySpace era, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's, it's like everything that like stuck up adults thought of the MySpace era personified in one character. Right. Yeah. It's a caricature of what you would think of like the alternative scene or the MySpace generation. It's definitely a caricature of what you would think that character would be overall. It's really... That, and, like, time. during that era, I mean, people have, I think, calmed down a lot since then, but they, the character oh, yeah. screaming Rage Against the Machine, motherfucker, while also, like, just talking about third-wave emo. Like, I remember around that time, especially in, like, the hardcore community, it was just like, hey, you're either into hardcore punk or you're into metal. Do not fuck with both. You right. know what I mean? Like, I remember in 2007, 2008... Like, people would talk shit to each other if they were into more than one of those things, you know? Right. Well, there were bands, like, there was Converge, which is a metalcore band from Boston. Like, they were a hardcore band that played metal. Um, There was, you know, and then you had, like, your um, straight-edge hardcore bands, like Earth Crisis, I think, would have definitely fallen more into that metalcore um, Dead Guy would have been another one. Maybe that was like 90s and not the two, late 2000s, but there was like, to me, that kind of crossover overall. But Rage Against a Machine in 2008, like, they're not around. No, it's so, it's such a random line. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a writer that like remembered the alternative music maybe he liked from 1991, 92. And then just kind of interjected that into yeah. the script. But it does, like, Rage Against the Machine, motherfucker, does sound better than, like, 30 Seconds from Mars, motherfucker. So, Fucking J. June, you know, motherfucker. Or, yeah, so that definitely, you know, drive like J. Who, motherfucker, you know. Oh. That, although that one, I guess, would kind of work. I don't know, you know? dude. If so, I heard Jess to Brazil, motherfucker, I would buy this movie in a heartbeat. Oh. <laughs> I like the last Jets of Brazil right yeah, now. It's all right. It's, it's really good. And the last one's actually really good. So who am I? I'm being hypocritical if I don't admit that right there. Um, all right. So now we get to the last scene, the last third of the movie. And this is where it goes from being this kind of like low budget, no money for effects to like torture porn. And it becomes a straight up like, lifted like you know it was scenes cut from hostel basically where nick has been kidnapped uh but he is still dressed in drag he has been kidnapped by rusty nail and uh him and bobby are seated across from one another back at rusty's lair and they play a dice game and uh, because you're near vegas so i guess that makes sense do you want to maybe explain the rules of this dice game? Man, to be honest, I don't even really... Uh, did they actually have set rules? It did. Okay, so how it goes is you basically you're given a pair of dice. And whatever you roll, there is a 
act of torture oh, that is associated yeah. with it. So Nick, I think um, Nick rolled for Bobby and vice versa. So Nick rolls like a seven and Bobby gets kneecapped. Uh, or Nick rolled like a six and Bobby got kneecapped. If you rolled a seven, the other person was safe. So Nick, uh, Bobby gets his kneecap taken out and he gets um, branded with an <laughs> R. You know, like, yeah, right on the nipple. Oh. It's just, it was like very painful looking. Um, Nick ends up getting impaled with a metal rod because Bobby rolls snake eyes. And I guess you crap out on snake eyes and they play it up for like dramatic effect. Like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And then the next thing you know, there's this giant right through his head shoved right through his skull out through his jaw. And, uh, it's a pretty cool effect. I, I think, see, it's, a, it, it just reminds me so much of like, hey, we saw a hostile, we saw a hostile one or two, you know, let's, let's, let's incorporate that. Or, hey, you know, saw four or five is coming out this year. Let's try to incorporate that. And it doesn't fit tonally into the rest of the film. It doesn't. And it just, to me, just, it, it strikes me of like, okay, this is what's hot in horror right now, which to be fair, it was, I mean, saw movies, lest we forget there was a point where like Saw movies would open up to like $30, $40 million on a budget of $6 million, and they would rake in over yeah. $100 million. You know? And it really wasn't until the next year when Paranormal Activity comes out that all of a sudden the Saw movies are all of a sudden passe. Like, I mean, I remember the... Te- it's it, it's going to be fascinating to talk about the Saw films because... I've only seen the first two in Jigsaw. Oh, man. And I I tapped out after number two. But I remember, like, the tagline was, if it's October, it's time for Saw. Like, it's easy to forget how much those movies ruled over the cultural landscape in horror movies in the early 2000s. Like, there was a point in time, I think, where we thought those movies would still be going on to this day because mm-hmm. they were so cheap to produce and people did not get sick. No, totally. And I'm super excited to tackle that franchise because I'm actually a huge mm-hmm. fan of those. I mean, the later ones, not so much, but I think Saw 3 mm-hmm. is Saw three is just, it's one of my favorite movies around. Like, it's so thematically mm-hmm. rich. And I, I think it, it takes what made the first one so enjoyable and just runs with it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess, too, like, part six, they have, like, a stinging indictment of the American mm-hmm. healthcare system, and they do spend, like, a lot of time. Of, like, you know, it's not like the Friday the 13th movies where you try to figure out the timeline and you get an ice cream headache because it's so slapdash that there was a lot of thought put into the content. Oh, they're so intricate. They yeah. And so, also, uh, really so, quickly, listeners, if you do like the Saw films, Uh, I recently had a piece on how Saw 3 tackles the dangers of living with revenge in your heart uh, at Dread Central. If you want to look that up, it would be cool. Excellent. Definitely do that. So what else is there on on Joyride 2? I think one thing that is just probably my favorite part of the movie because it's so silly is how Melissa just gets off on stealing shit (laughs) so much. Like, not just Rusty's car... But at some point, she steals like a motorbike, <laughs> and she just yep. like go, gets on that motorbike, going to like go save everyone. It is just like how much does she just love being a klepto? She's pretty badass. I mean, at one point when Nick is like, "There's no way I'm putting on that dress," fuck you. Like she takes a scalpel out and holds it right to his throat. It's like, listen, you fucking bitch. Like you are going out there. <laughs> You know, and she's like, I will fucking cut your throat right now. And he completely breaks down into a little puddle and basically yeah. pisses himself. Like, she is a pretty badass character overall. She um, she had it going on. No, totally. Like, I, I think Melissa, out of every character, is the one character that kind of stands out a little bit. Bobby's just kind of there to be kind of like, oh, he, this is who's going to get tortured most of the movie. Nick's there for us to laugh mm-hmm. at. Kayla's there just to, like, basically make Melissa more likable, I think. 
But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, I don't know. So at the end of the movie, Melissa, as she's driving Rusty Nails rig, drives the rig off of a cliff and she gets out beforehand, drives it basically off a cliff into this canyon and the thing explodes into a million pieces and it's a big fiery thingamajig. So you're left to believe that Rusty Nails is no more. But oh no, listeners, oh no. There's an coda to the film where another woman is stranded in the snow. Um, and who pulls up to let her in? But good old Rusty Nails to let her know that she will catch her death out there. See, because we need to set up Rusty We need to set up Joyride 3, which is the same Joy thing Ride at this 3, point. I wish there was right? a wrong turn. Uh, no, but like I think that's the most irritating thing to me about the film, actually. It's not Nick and his third wave emo love. It's the fact that every mm-hmm. single movie in this entire franchise ends basically the same way. You know, there's a there's a. I mean, you gotta love the optimism, thinking that people are gonna be clamoring for more. Three like, ends know. the same way. <laughs> like, there's always like a way that Rusty. There's no way Rusty would survive that, and at the end, he's always just like either picking up a hitchhiker. Or this, or in the third one, he's hitching a ride with another truck driver. <laughs> like, it, it's mm-hmm. just, it, it feels silly. And to be honest, it kind of feels like you're just taking your audience and being like, hey, this isn't that great, but you're going to be back for more. So Mark Gibbon is uh, plays Rusty Nail in this one. And I got to say, like, he tries to do the Ted Levine voice, but Mark Gibbon is no I, Ted Levine when it comes see, to... See, I think the difference is this. Mark Gibbon is trying to kind of not emulate, but kind of be somewhat close to the Ted Levine draw of the first film. Whereas mm-hmm. Ken Kersinger in the third film makes it his own. Like it's, it's almost like a Freddy role. Like it's, it's just maniacal. There's yeah. one liners and he kind of makes the character like in another dimension that we kind of just don't see in this one is kind of flat. And it kind of seems like a knockoff of the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I think that we can put Joyride 2 dead ahead in bed. on board with that. I think we've covered third wave emo punk. You know, I think we're good to go when it comes to burying this movie once and for all. So where can our listeners find us, Jerry? Well, we are on Twitter at Pod and the Pendulum. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jerry is just okay. Uh, Mike is uh, Mike underscore Snoonian, correct? Yes, we're That's there. Uh, we're on all social media platforms, but to be honest, I'm mostly on Twitter because most of my other stuff is just kind of family stuff. But yeah, we love talking to you guys. Tweet us anytime you want. We try to reach out and, and reply to every single person. Uh, tell us how can we improve the show. Tell us what you think of every episode. I, I'd like to think that we're one of the most approachable shows around, and, and we relish that fact. That, subscribe, uh, Podbean, uh you know, iTunes, any way you listen to your podcasts, subscribe, give us a review. Uh, if you feel inclined to do so, please give us a five-star review. That We'd appreciate it. You know, and, and the same as I said with Twitter. Tell us how we could improve because this show ultimately is about our listeners and we want to give you guys the best show that we can. Yeah, I, I will say that if you review our show and leave us a few words, positive reviews go a long way to new listeners finding our show. Uh, what it does for us is it gets us included, you know, if you liked X show, you might also like, or it gives, like, there are thousands of pod, thousands of pod, podcasts you can listen to right now. So a positive word of mouth goes a very long way to people discovering us, finding us, getting us new listeners and allowing us to grow our show. Um, on that note as well. I've launched a second podcast over on the Consequence of Sound podcast network with Jen Ferratu from The Horror Virgin and Laura Unterstall from The Losers Club. And she's also a writer for AV Club and The Onion called Psychoanalysis. And we are super humbled. Like the reception has been fantastic to it after we dropped our first episode. It's a bi weekly show. 
that covers horror movies through the lens of mental health and therapy. Um, really excited to do that show every other week, but this is my baby. This will always be my first love. So we are committed to bringing you like next week, I think will be, if not the only show ever on Joyride <laughs> 3, then the best damn podcast on Joyride Oh, I am committed to making that so. You are Dude, really excited. Dude, I love this one. Joyride 3 so much. I have like okay. the worst story ever about this one for next week. Excellent. All right. So until next week, listeners, thank you again for tuning in, spending an hour of your time with us, and we'll be back with Joyride 3 and then the Nightmare on Elm Street series. So that I'm excited for. Take care.